is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. What's up, folks? Welcome to uh, episode... Oh, man, I don't even know what episode it is of Existential. It's a new episode, and I'm grateful to be uh, here talking to you. I'm grateful that you're listening. Uh, for all of you who are part of Patreon community, I'm especially grateful for you. Uh, there'll be some extra content for you at the end of this broadcast, so make sure you keep listening. Uh, to all of you who have subscribed to this podcast and told your friends about it, who have retweeted us and reposted us on Instagram, thank you so much for all of you who are with us on this journey. Um, uh, one one quick thing, there is still a couple of spaces available for the Legacy Trip that Nandi and I are hosting in December, so you uh, once again can click on the link in the show notes to this episode to uh, find out how you could join us in Alabama at the Lynching Museum on an anti-racism, anti-racism pilgrimage if uh, you would like to do that. But today, um, back on the podcast, I think, I think, I think, I think he's been on every season. It's like like a co-host, kind of like a co-host, but but like not really a co-host. I would love for you to be the co-host. We should. We've been talking about doing a podcast together for too long. It's probably never going to happen. Yeah, it's probably never going to happen. But it is what it is. Why Henry Henry is here? Why all the doubt? I don't understand (laughs) where all this doubt is coming from. (laughs) I think I'm I'm setting my I'm setting my expectation low so that I'm not. You know, ultimately disappointed, you know, because y'all see, how, y'all see how Corey does. He just invite people on their show and cast <laughs> doubt on their aspirations and stuff. Why he be swinging on his guests like that? <laughs> That's why we brought you here. That's why you're back. So I, could, so I could troll you. I brought you back so I could troll you in person. In person. I see. Yeah, yeah man. How you doing, though? Oh, you know, I'm all right. I'm yeah. Hanging in there. I'm doing okay, actually. I'm making a lot of music and... You know, getting this book stuff together to um, yeah. what do you call it? Market the book. That's that's what that's called. We got to yeah. market. Yeah. It. When you got to let people know you wrote a book. <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna go on tour with it? Like, walk, are you gonna like go around the country talking about um, it? I don't really know. It kind of depends on what the COVID situation is looking like. You know, I know. Like, I guess a lot of people just feel like we're not in a pandemic anymore, and maybe it's not a pandemic. Maybe it's maybe it's downgraded to something. I don't know. But all, all I know is that, you know, it depends on what travel is looking like. Got you. Yeah. All of a sudden, my dog wants to play as soon as we, <laughs> we can't play right now. Okay. Um, yeah. Like COVID is still a thing and people are still getting and dying from it. But it's weird. It's almost like we've just kind of gone as a collective group in society. We're just kind of like we're done with it. You know, we're tired of it, I guess. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people are still being cautious. Um. Yeah, dude. I mean, that's that's a whole thing. It was I guess a conversation for another day. Yeah. So I mean, there uh, there would definitely be some kind of events, you know, to promote the book. Probably. I mean, if nothing else, a digital tour or digital stops on the tour, you know. But I mean, if travel's looking, if it's looking like it's pretty safe to travel, then I would love to go to some different cities and finally, you know be in the same room as some people who've been following me online for years now, but I've not been able to meet because I haven't had like a great reason to mm-hmm. to do something like that. Cause you know, they always say you want to have a reason to do a tour, at least when I was, when I was just thinking about music. So like, mm-hmm. I think what they meant by that was like, you have an album that you're promoting or something. So I've never done a tour really. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've done, I've done like music tours with other groups, but I've not done like a, any kind of Andre Henry tour. So that would be the cool. Andre, the Andre Henry tour coming your way in 2022 to a city near you somewhere, somewhere near you or, <laughs> somewhere. or, or, or online or somewhere online or somewhere online. I like, really I, like, I like the sound of that. The Andre Henry tour. Is that what you're going to call it? Or are you going to call it something else? <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah, know if should, the tour is happening yet. So we should do a marketing meeting. Make sure I'm invited to it so we can. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cause I got some names, <laughs> yeah. You got some. You got some labels for something. Well, so the book. What's the the book? Um, you've been working. You're working on this book for a while. I mean, it, it's been in you forever. I feel like you know, because it's just mm-hmm. your life experiences. But 
um, you know, talk about the book, what it's called, how you came to the name. And I know it's been a process, like getting this stuff out of you. Yeah. So the name of the book is All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Mm. The title comes from a blog that I wrote that went viral in 2019 called To All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Okay. We dropped the two because the book is not written to white people. But the blog was. The blog was written to white people, to actual white people. Actual white people that (laughs) you probably know a lot of them, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought about that. Just thought about who I'm talking to. Yeah. You probably know a lot of them people because. I probably do. There were a lot of white evangelicals in my life. And and it wasn't just religious, but you know, I grew up in the white evangelical church, so I I was close to a lot of white evangelicals by the time I was an adult. And um, around 2016, I think 2016 is probably one of the most active years I've had as as someone speaking up for racial justice, and that was kind of like a breaking point of many of those relationships as I began to become more vocal about the Black Lives Matter movement, not, not, the, not, not the movement itself, but the reality of anti-Black violence. That's what I was being vocal about. And as I became more vocal, the more strained those relationships became, <clears throat> up to the point where by 2017 or 2018, yeah, I think it was like 2017, 2018. Some of the folks that I would have considered the closest, some of the closest people to me, mm-hmm. some of them even like family, were, you know, just being very antagonistic, just, you know, trying to undermine everything that I say and, you know, calling me angry, which we know is co- white speak code for bad Negro, mm-hmm. um, or calling mm-hmm. me a racist, calling me a heretic, all these other things. And so, one of these people came at me like, man, I'm feeling so inarticulate these days. After like you put all your, after you put all your book, all your words in one place, it's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got, you got no more words left. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, this dude, he's coming at me uh, hard, coming at me hard and fast because he don't like what I'm posting on Instagram. And he said, you know, you're a racist. Basically, Martin Luther King would be ashamed of you. They love doing that, by the way. They love just like <laughs> random, randomly bringing in Dr. King. You'd be ashamed of you. He's rolling over in his grave right now. Yeah. Like, they killed Dr. King, made him a model minority, and then said, like, we all have to be, like, their version of Dr. King. So, anyway, Dr. King would be ashamed of me, apparently, this guy. <laughs> and <laughs> I've become the very thing that I'm fighting against. Is like, you hate white people. And so I started seeing that around a lot. You hate white people. And so I decided I am not going to allow them to say that I hate white people without a receipt. Hmm. Because there are no receipts for that. Hmm. You know, I have never said, (laughs) I have never said to them. public. Yeah, I've yeah. never said I've never said that. I never said I hate white people. My message has never been about hating white people. So, and the truth was I actually love these people. So I said, I'm going to write a receipt of the fact that I actually love these people. Mm. And I'm going to tell my side of the story. <clears throat> so, I was like, I I had a rhythm on my blog of writing a personal blog every 5 weeks. So, the fifth week came around and I was like, you know, I really need to write this receipt just, you know, write an open letter to these white people. And I literally just like, I usually, I would start writing on Tuesday, edit it by Thursday, scheduled it by Friday. That's That was my rhythm. Hmm. But this is one of those days where I just woke up and I just wrote it. It was like a Wednesday morning. I woke up, I just wrote, wrote the letter, posted it. It wasn't even really proofread that well. <laughs> okay, and this is a lesson, writers. Always proofread the work because you <laughs> never know which one is going to go viral. <laughs> You never know you which never one. Know. You never know which you one never hundreds, know. hundreds of thousands of people are going to read and be like, "It sounds like my life." Mm. And you sitting here writing like you can't spell, like you just discovered <laughs> words this morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
So anyway, a literary agent reached out to me after that blog went viral, and <clears throat> he said that he felt like there was a book in there. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you mean by that, because I sure don't see a book in there, but you are the one that sells books. I don't. So Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you feel like there's a book in there, then, you know, let's talk about it. And he helped me, he helped me, like, understand how to conceptualize a book from start to finish and uh, taught me about writing a book proposal. And it just turned, just so happened to turn out that he's a very legitimate, very legitimate literary agent, you know, like mm. um, who worked in publishing for a long time. And so that's, that's how the book came about. And that's where the top came from. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to say something here uh, that I think is important because when I, <clears throat> when I asked you to come back on the podcast and, you know, I, you're one of those folks that's just a friend of the show. And I'm never like, you know, I, most people when they're first time guests or I reach out to them, I send them like, here's what we're going to be talking about. Kind of, I never do that with you. Cause it's like, we're just going to talk. Right. But one mm-hmm. of the things I thought, I thought I knew I wanted to say was, um, I, I don't think people know for whatever reason that you are not the kind of person who hates other people. Like I've, I've, we probably, <laughs> we probably like, we probably have been, we've been friends now for a long time. We probably talk yeah. at least a couple times a month, if not more. And mm-hmm. I have never heard you. I, I do not remember a time hearing you talk bad about anyone. Like I've heard you talk about people's behavior, yeah, being bad. But I've never heard yeah. you like bad mouthing a person, and I've never heard you like even bad mouthing white people like that. Like, like it's. I've heard people who are like preachers and pastors talking right. bad about people and making fun of people and putting people down, but I've not heard that from you. And, and, and this, I'm glad you put the receipt out there, um, you know, that you don't hate white people. And I think, you know, I think <clears throat> it's a testimony to white supremacy that, that to criticize the thing that is crushing the world, like is to be hateful is to hate people. Right, right, right. And, you know, to your point, right, like, I just, as a person, I I always try to understand where people are coming from. I always try, you know, <laughs> you know, I can't always do it, but I try. Right. right. And so, you know, like you said, like, when we talk about people, even people who have caused me harm, like... I always try to think about what has their life been like, Hmm. you know, and where might that be coming from? I don't do that to excuse it, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I do that. And I did that for the white friends I couldn't keep, you know, Hmm. for years I did that talking to them, thinking about why they might've come to the conclusions that they came to and why they might have so much reluctance to support the movement and stuff like that. But eventually it just came down to the fact that y'all just don't want to listen. You just don't want to hear me. Mm. And you want me to either shut up or you want me to keep debating with you about this. Mm. And those things are not healthy for me. You know, like I, so I was, I started writing songs during that season and the songs are in the book too. You know, some of the lyrics are in the, are in the book that frame these different sections of my journey. Um, And one of them I did a remix for, you know, the book, which, you know, when people pre-order the book, they can get this remix. It's only available that way Mm. uh, to the song called Delusional. And I remember when I wrote Delusional, um, you can hear, I'm just kind of done, you know, Mm. and not even like in a mad, I hate you kind of way. Just like, I see you, bruh. That's like the first, the the first, um, the first two lines of the song. It must be good to be you. You you mm. you only believe what you want, you know. Mm. And that was me. This is me speaking up, no longer in an effort to persuade them, but simply just to reclaim my power. Mm. Mm. But yeah, no, no, no. It's not from a place of hate. But that is, I realized that. White people as privileged people, and I write about this a lot in, um, in I think, chapter four of the book, but 
<clears throat> privileged people can't can't distinguish the difference between social peace and their own personal comfort. Mm. So, <laughs> so that so that's why white people will get uncomfortable with something that you say and tell you. Not only they won't say I'm, they won't just say I'm uncomfortable. They say you are a part of what's wrong with yeah. this country. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you're exactly. tearing the country apart. You're you're yes. inciting ra- a race war. Da 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 da. Because <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they can't make this distinction, and that's a part of I think seeing just simply telling the truth about America being interpreted as hate. That's what's happening right now. As when we talk about America's racist history. That, you know, someone like President, former President Donald Trump could say that um, it was Mm anti-American to teach, you know, anti-racist and to to do any kind of anti-racism work um, historically and why we're having these huge debates about critical race theory right now. Because people are turning what is just being honest into hate. Um, What's interesting is that I don't think Donald Trump was wrong that anti-racism education is anti-American. <laughs> it actually is. It like America's foundation is not to educate people about the value, the worth, the suffering of black indigenous people in this country. Like it's not, it, that's never been how America has functioned. I mean, when you see, um, you know, any any civil rights movement, you see any objection, you see any pushback, you see any uprising of black folks and black power, there is always this like rush in from white folks, whether it's Tulsa, whether it's uh, what happened with the Black Panther Party and um, uh, um, why am I, why is, why is his name slipping my head? Um, uh, the, the, he was only 20, the young boy that got killed in Chicago. Uh, Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton. Like, that there are these, you know, America's fights back every time we try to be anti-racist. Well, okay, this, and this is the thing people don't want to talk about. And I have a whole, I have a whole chapter about it in the book. <laughs> this is why I was like, see, people acting excited about this book, but I don't know. Y'all haven't read it yet, so <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> like, I don't know if y'all going to be really excited about it. I'm like, I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to move to Cuba after this or something, I think, maybe. Because mm. the thing that we don't want to talk about and why we say America fights back is that we have to we have to just reckon with the fact that America was established as a white supremacist settler yep. co- colony. You know? Yeah. Uh, America. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Part of what part of what we've been doing is trying to appeal to the democratic ideals that America has espoused about itself in the Declaration and the Constitution. Right? The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And when we do that, it's like we're implicitly saying that democracy is America's primary political tradition. And that is false. And I don't know, and I literally don't know, I wrestle with this. Sometimes I wonder if trying to appeal to those values that we claim to share is actually worthwhile when we know good and well that those ideals were not really the primary uh, way that America was structured when we're talking about across race. I mean, emper- wow. empires do this all the time. They have an ideology that says that they're doing something good and that they are a huge blessing to the rest of the world. But the actual practice of empire building is mm. always violence and inequality, oppressive politics. <clears throat> America was founded on or or built unequal <laughs> you know yeah. it was yeah. built unequal it was built on land theft it was built on genocide it was built on enslavement which means that de- that those things are not democratic which means that democracy couldn't possibly be 
America's primary political tradition, which is why (laughs) whenever there are freedom movements in America, they are systematically dismantled and they are followed by fascist counter-revolutions. Because America's primary tradition, which is white supremacy, is always trying to course correct. It's always trying to win the day. It is always trying to prevail. And that's why we keep on having this rhythm of, you know, uh, social movement for, for justice and then these, this, 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 this huge backlash. But, and I know that I just tried, tried to say this, but I'm just going to try to say it again. America was not established as a democracy for all people. No. It was founded as a white supremacist state. And occasionally, it experiences freedom movements that try to expand or realize the the the, the ideology of democracy and freedom and justice that it ex, that it expresses. Mm. And we need to reckon with that. Yeah, I mean that's a oh god, that's so there's so much, there's so much, so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta slow down <laughs> my brain. Because I just ran all the way to this like sort of fatalistic place. Actually, to be honest with you, I, I ran where I ran at the beginning of the podcast. So it's never gonna it's never gonna happen. This is where I, I ran to. <laughs> and I got I need to come back. I need to come back and 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 center myself because it's interesting. Dr. King's entire premise was for his work to me seems to be that he wanted to hold America to what America claimed on paper. Like that like is we, true. We want America to be what they say they are. And what I just heard you say is we know good and damn well what America says is not what they actually want to be. Right? And never exactly. and never have and been. never ha- it's never been their intention to be equal because the whole system breaks down if there's any sort of equality. Like it doesn't it no longer really works. Well, it was literally not built for that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it wasn't like, built for equality. Do you know? The Declaration of Independence was actually finished. They could have signed it on July second. You know why it was. You know why why it was finalized July fourth. So they, we have fireworks. They spent two days arguing about slavery. Mm. Mm. They spent two days arguing about slavery. What was the argument? Like what? Did, <laughs> Like who, who didn't want it, or were they arguing just about well, like? I mean, you have some, you do have some people at that time who are like, okay, well, we talking about democracy and stuff. We should free these people, mm. or about how they can, yeah, just including slavery in this larger conversation about democracy. Hold on a second. Yeah. I thought I could sneak this hash brown in, but I can't. <laughs> I can't. No, you could. It's just as I run to school. It's too thick. <laughs> the hash browns, you can't sneak a hash brown in. No, you can't do it. No. I learned the hard way. So, so basically what I'm saying is we have to, that is exactly what Dr. King tries to do for much of his career, much of his um, advocacy. It's try to hold America accountable to what America has said about itself. And it's what many of us have done. And I literally do not know. I have been questioning this, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Do we hold these people accountable to things that we know they never meant? Mm. Whew. Well, okay, yeah. so this brings me to um, um, uh, something that you said on Twitter that I found very interesting um, because... You know, you just did the music video, which I liked a lot, the playing hooky music video and subsequent move, subsequent movement of of an attempt at liberating people from white Jesus. OK, mm-hmm. which to me is a <laughs> theological endeavor. <laughs> but I know you are no longer like really theology is not something that that moves you like where you're like, oh, I really want to talk about that. But I do want to ask you this question because when we sure. talk about when we talk about this, like um, 
you know, the hard pill of America never intended for you or I to be uh, fully liberated and free and on the same playing field as as white folks. Um, I don't hear hope for redemption like outside of there being some divine intervention in that. So where do you stand now with, you know, this white Jesus is not our savior, not our liberator, and also bearing the very practical day-to-day, we as human beings got to, you know, got to put our hands to the plow and do some work. Like, how does how does all that mesh in your brain when it comes to liberation? I gave up on divine liberation a long time ago, mm. divine intervention a long time ago. <clears throat> I can't say that there won't, I can't say there won't be any divine intervention. I, I don't know that. That's above my pay grade to know. <laughs> it's above me now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But what I will say is that I believe in nonviolent struggle. That's what I believe in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I believe in social movements. That's what I believe in. And when you say that knowing that America was founded on anti-blackness and built to be a white supremacist state, that it takes away hope uh, for change through our own collective action, Hmm. To me, it sounds like there's an underlying presupposition that many people share a misunderstanding about nonviolent struggle, which is that nonviolent struggle works when you're in a more democratic situation. That's what a lot of people believe. You know, um, one of my heroes, Kwame Ture, even said, and, and you know, he tried nonviolent struggle. He was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you know, and was was pretty high up in there. Mm-hmm. And he he said, you know, that the crucial mistake that Dr. King made was assuming that America has a conscience, mm-hmm. because that that was what that was Dr. King's conception of nonviolent struggle was that he was going to make a, a friend out of his enemies, mm-hmm. and that he was going to change the oppressor's mind. That the oppressor would be changed through this. Okay, well, that's one way of looking at nonviolent struggle. I'm not going to get into all the ways of thinking about it, but just people just need to know that's only one conception of nonviolent struggle. Many other people have practiced it with different understandings, and not all of them have sought to convert the oppressor. Mm-hmm. But but let me get back to the um, the democ- the democratic assumption, right? <laughs> Also, just going to pat myself on the back for keeping track of my train of thought today. <laughs> for staying on the same train. Yeah. Okay. Not switching to a bunch of stations. No, I did not. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't make one transfer. Um, okay, so <clears throat> the thing that people need to understand is that it really doesn't matter if America is you know, actually the democracy that it claims to be or not. Nonviolent struggle works. Mm. And it has worked in way less democratic situations than ours. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a part of me that thinks that it might be more effective at toppling dictators than it is at changing democracies. Probably because, so. Because in this kind of situation that we're in, I don't think people have a visceral, embodied understanding of how messed up, how corrupt, how oppressive, how violent, how pervasive, how deeply entrenched anti-Black violence is in this country. Mm. I think that we are minimizing it on a daily basis, especially non-Black people. Mm. Mm. And a part of why we don't believe that, I think, has to do with American ideology. For sure. I think that many people genuinely believe that this country is better than most, you know, Mm. or Mm. there is just a type of comfort that we're afforded in this country that allows us to check out of political reality. I think that works against us more because I don't know, man. I mean, I've been, I've been, 
I've been a local community organizer, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I've tried to mobilize people. I've tried to organize people. And without questioning their dedication, I just have to say that I don't see a type of daily urgency from people, mm-hmm. a, type of, a type of awareness that makes them every single day figure out or search, seek out, how can I practically change this country today? Mm. What can I do? What little step can I do to move the work forward? I thank God for the creative and committed few. And I'm also, you know, (laughs) encouraged that it only takes a small minority of people to change the country. You know, about three and a half percent of the population in sustained active nonviolence can change this country. But I think that there's something about American culture and American life that convinces us that we don't have to live with that type of urgency. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I resonate with that because as you're talking about it, I think about the fact that we in America went from um, the closest thing in my lifetime to a dictator um, from 2016 until this past election to now, you know, an- another president, right? So we don't have the, it's it's almost like a moving target. And, and there's like this ideology woven into our democracy that is the in fact the dictator it's not like it's a it's not like it is a person in flesh and blood that you can like attack it is ideologies woven throughout every system within our country and it makes it a whole lot more difficult to fight when it's that well that is a huge part of it right is that it's not like fixing a paper jam Mm -hmm. you know what i mean you know, like America is not an an otherwise healthy democratic system that just needs a little reform in this institution or that institution. And we're just going to be able to open up the printer and find the lodge paper mm-hmm. and pull it out and get back to our democratic, you know, life, mm-hmm. which is kind of how we treated, which is kind of, it's, sorry, which is, I don't, I don't want to say we treated because I don't want to sound like I'm being like hypercritical of everyone, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't want people to feel super discouraged by this, but I'm just saying like, I feel like people decided that when Joe Biden was elected that, okay, we solved it. Now pride rock is okay. Again, it's going to rain. We're going to get green grass again, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote about, I did write about this, I think in one of my emails and I tweeted about it this weeks ago. I mean, a couple months ago now, just like, I think that people, they acted like they elected a champion of democracy into office when Joe Biden walked into the Oval Office. When really, this is not like, this is not like the end of The Lion King or one of those movies where everything goes back to the way it's supposed to be. This is like the beginning of Street Fighter when you pick your character and you find out who your opponent is. Mm. Mm. Like we stopped talking about kids in cages at the border or just, you know, we, we stopped talking about, you know, uh, uh, the, the abuse of migrants, you know, the human rights abuses at the border mm-hmm. when, when Joe Biden got elected until we saw those, those videos of the men on horses, you know, whipping Haitian immigrants. It, it, it went out of sight, out of mind. We, we stopped um, hearing as much. I mean, we, we stopped seeing these demonstrations you know, about uh, abolishing or, yeah, abolishing the police, defunding the police. That's what I was looking for, defunding the police, you know. And I'm not saying people aren't still organizing around those things, but the momentum waned. Now, some of that is expected, you know, like movement activity does not just rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. It it rises and it falls, Mm -hmm. you know. So I'm not saying, you know, where's your outrage? You should still be out in the streets. At the same time, I remember when I was waking up 
and saying, I have to invest my body in this struggle. Yeah. And I realized that if we treat racism, systemic racism, as though it's like it comes and goes seasonally, then it's like having an untreated disease, you know, mm. or like we're not taking our condition seriously, mm. you know. If we understand the severity of our condition, then we'd be working on every day to correct it, to do something about it. Hmm. Hmm. And that's what I mean. I don't see that, you know? Yeah, man, for sure. Well, to shift gears just slightly, because now as I'm listening to you talk, um, I, I, want you, I want you to tell me if what I'm hearing is accurate or not. Because I'm now I'm envisioning the T-shirt, which if you haven't gotten one yet, um, they're pretty awesome. The, um, what does it say? White Jesus break up with white Jesus. Um, I'm, I'm, I first saw that through the lens of spirituality, through the lens of faith. As I'm listening to you talk now, I'm seeing white Jesus as more of a construct of white supremacy that allows for apathy and outright antagonism towards the movement for black lives. Like is 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 that more of where you position the breakup with white Jesus than the, you know, stop going to white churches? Um, man, this is hard. This is hard to parse. Let me back up just a second and and okay. speak and speak about divine intervention because I realized we went a bunch of different places, but I never really said. I said I kind of like I don't think about divine intervention, but for people who do. <laughs> I don't want I don't want for them to feel like I just took that off the table. And then I need to come back to Well, cuz you did say you still believe, about you, you you still believe in the one God who hovered over the chaos. Yeah, but I wrote that I, in 2017. I, I forget the I forget the rest <laughs> of the lyrics. <laughs> but you put the video out in 2021. Yes, you know, with with the same lyrics in it, so you know? What? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to change the song. I'm not going to re-record the song. For the there video. Are, I mean, there are some songs that if you wrote them in 2015, 2013, 2012, that you would, if you if you like the song enough, but you hated the lyrics, you change the lyrics. Do you realize what it would take <laughs> for me to actually just, like, re-record that song? A lot. A yeah. Lot. I'm not gonna like, go that. ahead. I'm not saying I don't believe in that anymore. I'm just saying, like, you know. It was 2017. So you want to put divine intervention so, back on the table for oh those no, I just, I just, table. I just don't want for people to feel like I'm attacking the idea. Gotcha. So, okay. First off, Occupy Coast, uh, the co-founder of Occupy Wall Street, Michael White, has a whole, he has like this whole framework of these four different, um, I guess, Oh man, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but it's like four different components of a revolutionary theory that is necessary for social change right now. And part of it has to do with what is called thurgyism. I don't know if that's how you actually pronounce it, but thurgyism is where like you are open to the divine, right? And he he says that that's an essential part. And that really challenged me. You know, at the time, because at the time when I read that, I was an out and out materialist. I was like, there's no God. Couldn't be. Right? <laughs> Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be. Look at this place. Look at this shit laying around <laughs> look, look, all over the place. You tell me, nobody, live, nobody lives here. Look at this shithole planet and tell me <laughs> that there's a God overseeing it. <laughs> yeah. Hovering over it. Come on. Yeah. I can't, I, I don't <laughs> but that really did challenge me. So let me say this. For me, first off, my own decolonizing journey has made God much bigger than God ever could have been 100%. when I was an evangelical. For right? sure. Yeah. Even though we gave it lip service, we were like, oh, God is bigger than the air I breathe. The world yeah, the world, yeah, who wrote that song? Was that his I don't song? Know. I don't know, but the point is, I heard that we, used song to, we used to sing that even though we didn't mean it because we'd be like, yeah, God is sure. bigger than the air I breathe. And then as yeah. soon as you say something that's not in the Bible or that you don't know was in the Bible, you're like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Not too, put yeah. that, put too that back in that little back in that little doctrinal <laughs> box. <laughs> what you do now? What you do walk around out here? <laughs> like you own the place. <laughs> 
God, if you don't get back in that little box I made for you. You gotta get back in that box. <laughs> if you don't get your divine ass <laughs> back in that box. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> so... I went on this whole journey that I don't have time to talk about really, and I, I didn't have really space to talk about it in my book, but I went through a whole journey where I like deconstructed down to nothing. I was just like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about spirituality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just want to talk about how do black people get free practically, materially? How do we change the material conditions that keep on killing black people? Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I was started studying nonviolent struggle. And in studying nonviolent struggle, I kept running into religious people, spiritual people, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, you know, all, all these people. And they were in the vanguard of these movements. And um, someone told me, yeah, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know if I should share that. I'd be oversharing and be like, <laughs> I just keep, I just keep coming up to this line where it's like, how much can I say without getting fired from the Christian organization that I work okay. for? Okay. No, right. But anyway, I, someone told me if I, if I tried mushrooms, then I would believe in God again. And so I tried mushrooms because I wanted to believe in God again. Mm-hmm. And um, side note. I saw Adrian Marie Brown post something the other day about how all these early Christian pictures of Jesus have mushrooms in them. And so Mm -hmm. there are people who are wondering if early Christians actually incorporated mushrooms in their, um, yeah, in their religious practice. Mm -hmm. Anyway, someone told me if I tried mushrooms that I would believe in God again. So I tried mushrooms. And I will tell you, I, I, I came out of that experience more open to the divine, more open to God all of that than I, than I've been able to be in years. And partly is because I, we're there, you know, I think some of these budgeting studies about <clears throat> the healing effects of, yes. you know, psychedelics and stuff like yeah. that. So there might there, be there are actually Christian pastors that are, have, uh, are taking people on spiritual journeys. Yeah. So there, mushrooms. so there, there might have been some religious trauma that that addressed for me. So anyway, mm. hmm. I came out of that experience feeling like if nothing else, I can think of God as that spirit that moves us toward collective action. Mm. So there's this prayer that says Christ has no body but yours. Right. 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 Um, and I believe that this is something I think, think this, this echoes something that is actually in the Bible that God creates human beings and says, okay, now I, he put the whole world in our hands, you know, like, <laughs> um, rule over the earth, govern it, you know? And like, mm. as an evangelist, I used to hear crazy pastors talking about how that means I can go outside and tell birds what to do. That's not exactly. what that means. Yeah. It means you're responsible for the Garden of Eden, for its care. It, you're, you're the ones that are made to till and keep it. Which is why the psalmist says, you know, the heavens belong, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but he's given the earth to man to rule and forgive me everyone for all the patriarchal language i'm just i'm quoting how, how the bible yeah, says exactly. you know and yeah. also the song was he put the whole word so i just sang yeah. You know, yeah 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 please yeah. please you know just understand like Which surely know. surely by now we we know people <laughs> listening to this know that we we believe in the non-binary god yeah yeah we know that god doesn't have a penis but, uh, you know. surely surely we know that so um or do okay anyway um oh, just make god a ter- a terrible being <laughs> yeah, terrible being. So, um, so yeah, so um, that's that's why the psalmist says the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but He's given He's given the the He's given humans the world to rule, and also why in Psalm eighty two, because based on the idea that God has deputized human beings to care for the planet and to care for what happens on the world, to rule and to govern all kind of stuff, giving them authority, is why God walks in in Psalm eighty two and is walking among the judges of Israel, going. Uh, what are you doing? Mm. Give justice to the needy, care mm. for the poor, all that kind of stuff. Because God's given the earth to people to rule, you know, mm. and it matters the way that they do those things. So you can think of if Christ has no body but yours, <laughs> and you're creating the image of God to to govern this place, to till and to keep it, right? then you can think of social movements and participating in social movements as a way that you are tilling and keeping God's garden. Mm. 
you you in a way are being Christ's body because that is what Jesus would be doing, right? Mm -hmm. Standing up to corrupt power, speaking the truth, all those kinds of things, right? Christ has no body but yours. So if God wants to intervene against systemic racism, how else is God going to do it except for you? Past behavior is the best indicator of present and future behavior. If whenever God wants to do something in scripture, God goes tapping someone, some human being on the shoulder. Hey, come on, Abraham. I'm trying to, you know, correct what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Hey, come on, Moses. We got to interrupt, you know, the system of oppression in Egypt. Hey, come on, Elijah, Isaiah, Deborah. Uh, Elijah, Elisha, Mary, Miriam, you know, if God does that throughout scripture, why would we think that God is just going to part the heavens and come down and, ki- and you know, zap all the white supremacists like the, like at the end of Watchmen on HBO? <laughs> that don't make no sense. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to think about, if you want to think about divine intervention, I mean, you can believe in divine intervention however you want. I'm not, I'm, I'm not the police, mm. the theology police here. Mm. But what I'm saying is that you can also think about it in an embodied way that says that when God breathes God's breath into your lungs and says, now, like, you are created in my image, and now you are going to be responsible for what happens on this planet, that God wants, <laughs> that mm. God may be wanting to address these things through actual bodies, you know, mm. and that was the thing I was saying in 2016 when I was saying like how these people who raised me kept telling me that salvation is only a spiritual thing. It's God takes your soul and brings you into heaven. But the quintessential picture of salvation in scripture is God walking Israelite bodies across actual geographical space and taking them from one geographical place to another geographical place, you know, mm. and so. Mm. And God could have done that all by God's self, but for some reason, God involving Moses and Aaron in the whole thing. And Moses can't even talk good. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Miriam and like all through all of these people throughout history. And if you take the Bible seriously and literally whatever, you know, it's it's plain and simple in front of you that God has always used human beings. And that is the divine intervention. And God is so deep, so good, like um, so rich to to think about from that vantage point. Um, when I when I say break up with like Jesus and I bring these messages, there are two things I'm trying to do. First, I'm just trying to tell my story. You know yes. what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. for, and that's that's one thing. Like, I really wish that people would stop abstracting what is very embodied and lived experience for me because I'm talking mm-hmm. about my religious trauma. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm good at doing it in theological language because I have two degrees in theology and I was a pastor and I I used to read theology. Uh, you know. Um, voraciously. I had a big appetite for it because I really believed, you know, once upon a time, I really did believe that the solutions were theological, Mm. right? And the issues were were theological. And that is partly true, but I can't engage in theological work in the way that I used to because it's triggering, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm. I'm wrestling with a lot there. So that's one. I'm just trying to tell my story, you know? Mm. But in addition to that, I am trying to fight against the cultural, the mental, uh, the symbolic oppression of Black people in the name of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So these, these colonizers, when they wrote their treatises and, and all these things, they said that they wanted to spread the three C's. Commerce, uh, civilization, and Christianity. Hmm. And they they brought in their white theology that they called Christianity, their theology of whiteness, that a theology of white supremacy. Um, hmm. <clears throat> they intertwine these things so much that um, I don't think that you can actually have a complete conversation about white supremacy, anti-blackness, racism, all that kind of stuff, without talking about the influence of Christian theology and its usefulness as a weapon. Yeah. Because the thing that white, the thing that oppressors in general, but I'm going to talk about white people, that they want, that the ideal for them is to get the occupied or the oppressed to comply with their own oppression. Yes. And one way that they have tried to do this is through the institution of the church yeah. and through their theology, you yeah. know, 
For me, I'm talking about cultural hegemony. To me, I'm talking about the uh, what we call the symbolic contest. There's the institutional contest. I'm getting. I'm pulling this from Jonathan Smucker, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the institutional contest, which is changing the laws, changing the schools, uh, getting getting new people on the school board, all that kind of stuff. The symbolic contest is are the stories and the frameworks that we use to make meaning and the cultural ideas and logics, the common sense that Mm. upholds white supremacy. And Mm. part of that common sense has to do with slaveholder theology that's been given to us, right? So it doesn't really matter to me whether or not someone believes in God or whether they stay involved in church and all that kind of stuff. That's not why I'm talking about breaking up with white Jesus. I'm talking about breaking up with white Jesus because white Jesus is, is part, is a mascot of slaveholder theology. It's, and it's just, it's just, and they're, they're just religious ideas to both control the behavior of white people, you know, and also to convince black people not to fight for our own liberation. This is the oldest, this is the oldest play in impact in the imperial playbook. This is what Caesar and them were doing. They were using theology, the theology of divinity and these divine backstories that they told about every Caesar to subjugate people into believing that the mandates that came down from the empire were not just from human beings, but they were from God. They were from the gods. In fact, not just from the, they were these people that you are following are gods and they carry the wrath of God with them. They carry the benevolence of God with them. So if you're on their good side, they will be benevolent towards you. If you're not, then we'll crucify and destroy you and crush you because we are divine. And that's, this sounds to me, like when you talk about white Jesus in America, that's what this sounds like. It sounds like this, like this, this, this way that empire has co-opted religion to keep its power. Well, we, and that is exactly what we're dealing with. Like in America, we have this kind of civil religion where like in one of the buildings of the Capitol, there's a, there's a picture of the apotheosis of George Washington or a depiction, a painting of the apotheosis mm-hmm. of George Washington. So we do have these myths like, like uh, what is the name of that again? Manifest destiny. Yes. Right. Yes. That God has given white Americans the right to expand its borders mm. from the eastern seaboard to the west and into the Philippines and into Puerto Rico. You know, they established the Monroe Doctrine, telling the European countries on you know the. Germany and Britain and all these places that they can't come over here and claim land anymore because it belongs to the white people that, you know, fought off the British here now. Right. Mm. So that, that is what we, that is what we're dealing with in America. And so it's unfortunate to me that we can't mention church, Christianity, Jesus, all that kind of stuff without people thinking, Oh, this is a conversation about helping the church or, Oh, this is a conversation about fixing orthodoxy. Or this is a conversation about true Christianity that comes up. Those are not the conversations that I'm interested in. You notice I don't have theological debates with people online. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I just randomly, I just randomly spew something about my religious trauma, and then people who are actually interested in theological debates come and try to debate me, and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do that with you because I really don't, <laughs> I really don't care. Yeah, seriously, I, I, I genuinely yeah. don't care. And then you know, it's some useless. and then. And then people be like, oh, well, this, oh, this guy, he doesn't, he doesn't care about the glory of God. I was like, I was never talking about the glory of God. I was talking. He doesn't, no, nobody said uh, that. Somebody said you yeah, don't care. Yeah, about somebody, God. yeah, somebody said that to me. You but, don't and I'm like, care I'm about like, the glory of God. I'm like, bro, you don't even know what room you walked into. Like, this was, <laughs> like I, I'm not talking about this because I care about like, you know, you rightly dividing the Bible or anything like that. That's, that's not why I'm talking about this. I'm talking about this because this is a weapon that has been used against black people. And, and it is a weapon that it is a weapon that has actually in, in some, in many cases been put in the hands of black people so that we can harm ourselves with it, Mm. you know, or keep just to keep us, you know, uh, to keep us from, like I said, to keep us from fighting in our own necessary revolution, to keep us from fighting for our own liberation. And that means that we have to address the ideas that have been handed down to us through a white social institution hmm. that have been embedded into our bodies, 
that have become a part of our common sense that that keep us preoccupied with things that okay for let me let me i think y'all see where i was going with that let me tell you a little story mm. i have a friend she's she was teaching a bible study in central florida she went to a church where every woman every other woman in this bible study was white and a, a and a handful of them were trump supporters and they all got in a group chat without her and were talking about her involvement in the black lives matter movement and this woman is on the phone with me asking me if she was being too harsh with a white lady that she basically said, I'm, this is, I'm going to fight for my people. And she's on the phone with me asking me if she was too harsh. Why is it even a question? Hmm. Why, why do we even have to go through this mental minutia of going over our steps and asking, were we kind enough to white people when we said, I'm going to fight to get this, you know, to get the knee of white supremacy off of my neck? Right. I have another friend, a, a black man who who was online, you know, debating with white Christians like I used to do in 2016. And he he tags me in the thread, first off, which is a no, no. people, <laughs> Do not tag me. Do not tag me in a thread where you are going back and forth with white people in their white nonsense. I stopped doing that yeah, you it's, know, it's years harmful. ago for my it's own too, mental yeah. health. Yeah. Do not tag me. I will not come to the rescue. In yeah. fact, I will end up in your DM saying, why would you do that? Yeah. So I kept telling this guy, he no, he texted, he he tagged me and said, I don't know how you do this every day. I said, I don't. <laughs> I don't. That's what you think I do. I don't do that. But anyway, I bring I bring up his story to say, like, why do we feel as black people that we have to get into this codependent relationship with white people where we are responsible for their mm-hmm. salvation? Mm-hmm. From anti-black, uh, from anti-blackness, you know, that we have to pull them kicking and screaming out of their own anti-blackness. And guess what? While we've done, while we're so preoccupied with that, we haven't tr- we haven't traced our lineage. We don't know what tribe we're from in Africa. We don't know about the philosophers that that you know that um, that Greek philosophers came to Africa to learn from. You know, we don't know about our ancestral practices and their spiritualities. You know. We, we don't we don't know these things. We're not getting our time yeah. to recover what was stolen from us and what we've lost, you know, to address the wounds of colonization on our own psyches and on our own bodies. You know, like this is yeah. this is extreme trauma. Yeah, it is. The way that the way that black families were torn apart by colonizers and our and our and the pathway back to our source has the way that they tried to cover that up for us, you know. Mm. Yeah. Right. So, but we're so, but we get so preoccupied in like fighting with white people that we don't get to care for ourselves in these ways. Right. That's why I'm talking about breaking up with white Jesus. Dude. Right. Yeah. Because when I was in Jamaica, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a rant. No, here, keep going. Go ahead. Wanna, I was, I was um, in my kitchen in Montego Bay. Cause y'all know I moved to Jamaica last year <laughs> and then I had to move back immediately, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get back there. Um, <laughs> But I was in my apartment in Montego Bay, and a couple of days before then, I think it was a couple of days, my dad told me, and I never heard this before, about exactly where my mother's bloodline began. Mm. And, you know, I know that we're Jamaican, but I didn't know that, like, my my earliest ancestor on my mother's side that we know of was an African woman named Bida. And a Scottish slaveholder uh, whose last name was Pennycook. And for days, I couldn't stop thinking about Bitta. I was just like, I wish that I could find something about her, like just anything. Like, what was her life like? I just wanted to know. And a couple of days later, um, I was washing dishes in the kitchen. And I just felt, I, like I said, I, was, I kept thinking about her, but it felt more like, I don't know. It felt more like I was reaching out to her. Like I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just inside. And I, I felt like she was reaching out to me too. Yeah. I just, that's what I felt. I can't say that again. I don't know how the metaphysics of the universe work. I just, that's just how I felt. And I heard a voice in Patwa say mm-hmm. to me, a voice in Patwa said to me, and who teach we for treat with ancestor like stranger. You understand what I said? 
I I don't, but I okay. but but so, I, I feel it. I don't know what you said though. It said so the voice, the thought was, and who taught us to treat our ancestors like strangers? Mm. And I knew the answer to that question. That was that is that that is an idea that comes from colonization that these things have, that that's demonic, right? Like to to consider the ancestors to communicate with our ancestors, all that kind of stuff. That comes from colonizers. It don't even come from the Bible because the Bible talks about how we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Peter goes up on this mountain with Jesus, and Moses and Elijah are there. You know, like mm-hmm. this, this mm-hmm. you know, Elijah Elijah goes. I mean, Elisha goes and finds Elisha's uh, or some. You know, or no, no, he, it ha- it's it's all throughout. The There's ancestral, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say Elisha found Elijah's bones, but I don't think that's true, actually. Um, uh, but anyway, but you feel what I'm saying. It's it's in there. But but colonizer said no. So I start thinking about this, and I go, there must be a reason. There must be a reason why colonizers did not want for us to have these connections. They didn't want for us to have connections to our own families living, and they didn't want us having this connection with our ancestors. It was just one one moment where I realized, oh, my gosh, like colonization has been consequential to me in more ways than I even realized when I started this journey. And I need time. I need time to really investigate, you know, these values that I've been given, these, mm. these taboos that I've been abiding by, yeah, you know, man. these things that I feel are forbidden that come from nothing else than from the abuse of white oppressors who wanted to isolate us, <laughs> you know, so that they could control us. And that's why I'm saying, like, that's why, that's where the breakup with white Jesus thing comes from. It comes from me telling my story, but also me wanting to fight against, you know, the the cultural dominance of this. And just one more thing on this is that that the idea that we need to decolonize is not just for black people and people of color, you know. It's white people need to decolonize too. And I think that part of us understanding that will get us out of, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like, okay, the, the, the energy for the movement waned. There doesn't seem to be this visceral, you know, embodied understanding that this problem doesn't go away. And at the time I said anti-racism or, or I said racism or anti-blackness, but I'm starting to lean more into just looking at the effects of imperialism and colonialism on the world. And that has had an effect on white people too. Like oh, when, yeah, yeah. When Mandela says that, you know, the oppressor is oppressed during his prison, his time in prison, because, yeah, you know, the oppressor has also been reared in this supremacist common sense and is literally unable to think outside of it without an intervention of some sort, Mm -hmm. you know. With with the with the with the mental training that they've been reared in, they will always come. The, the calculus, all the calculus or the algorithm, will always yield the same supremacist logic behavior, you know. And that common sense reproduces itself, which is why when white people say shit that is just, you know, nonsensical oppressor bullshit. They feel like they've come to novel conclusions. They feel like they're being rational. They feel like they're being reasonable. Well, yeah, like if I give you if I give you two slices of bread, a jar of peanut butter, and some jelly, what are you gonna make? Exactly. You're gonna make a jelly sandwich, you're gonna make a peanut butter sandwich, you're gonna make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know? Yeah. So you that that's that's what you have the tools to do. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so in saying that, I'm saying like we, that, that white people all, like, I think that we get out of the conversation of how come white people aren't helping us anymore. If we, if we shift this conversation to, we all have decolonizing work to do. Mm -hmm. And a part of that decolonizing work is letting go of one of the most powerful means of social control which is the religious ideology that allowed them to justify all of the violence and white supremacy that they've done. Mm. Damn. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you, uh, yeah, you took it, you took us somewhere today. 
you took us somewhere today that's i'm gonna be sitting on this stuff for a long a long long damn time so much so much in there it's it's interesting and we'll wrap up here but it's interesting like as i'm hearing you talk when i think about who um christians have buddy buddied up to over the last several years um Mm -hmm. when i watch christians um all of a sudden, out of nowhere, start quoting Dave Chappelle. The moment Dave Chappelle starts being uh, negative towards trans people, mm-hmm. and as if as if it's not black trans uh, women who are the most oppressed in our society, right? right? Like that. So then you see Christians start to buddy 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 up to him. You saw Christians start to buddy buddy up to Donald Trump when Donald Trump came out of the box talking about how Mexicans were bringing rapists and drugs and gangs and violence into mm-hmm. our pristine nation and then there's this 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 migration towards oppressive power or the fight back that happens um with people like you know this whole cancel culture bullshit you know stuff that people talk about it's like we now are rising up to fight back against these these virtuous (laughs) things because we don't recognize them as virtuous because our imperial religion has taught us that virtue is in white dominance and strength and not in any sort of subversive kind loving all-inclusive way of being and it's like it's wild man it's wild we got well we got work to do we all got decolonizing to do i love that i appreciate you coming back on on the podcast man um pre-orders for the book are available now right people can start to pre-order um all the white people i couldn't keep today yeah i mean people can order the book they can pre-order the book today Anywhere, you know, that books are sold. So, you know, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you know, all those places. Um, also my website, AndreHenry.co. You can order it there okay. too. We'll put we'll put that in the uh, show notes. Man, thank you so much um for for, for coming back on again. This is this is a seasonal tradition. Yeah. <laughs> well, Thank you, all of you who listened to this uh, episode. Hopefully it resonated with you. I know it did. Um, Thank you to all of you who uh, are going to go subscribe to the podcast now. Give us a rating and a review. And thank you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.